0: Welcome to episode 139 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Krivatt, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at krivattenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Peter Kelly Detweiler, P-K-D, for all you Smart Grid folks, co-founder at Northbridge Energy Partners, grid modernization thought leader, consultant, speaker, and author of the wonderful book, The Energy Switch, how companies and customers are transforming the electric grid and the future of power. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. The Climate Champions is also sponsored by the Gridwise Alliance. Uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry, the Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. Also, check out the videos on my new YouTube channel, The Climate Champions. With interviews with Jigger Shaw, Chris Black, Rick Kornfeld, 11 year old podcast host of We the Children, Zach Fox Deval, and of course, PKD, and a bunch of one minute climate update shorts. Northbridge Energy Partners is an independent consulting organization with expertise and perspective on U.S. energy markets. Northbridge works with retail energy companies, institutional energy consumers, technologists, and investors providing strategic business development, market research and technology development services. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Peter Kelly Detweiler. That's P-K-D to everybody in the industry. He's the co-founder of Northbridge Energy Partners. He's definitely one of the top energy industry thought leaders. He's author of the book, The Energy Switch. Peter, welcome to The Climate Champions.
1: Thank you, Lee. It's a true pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. When it comes to climate change, what was your motivating moment?
1: I've been concerned about environmental issues ever since I was little and watched striped bass disappear in the area where I lived on Cape Cod. But there was a book that came out that my mom gave me sometime in the mid-80s called Ice Time. And it was about NCAR, the lab in uh, Colorado, Center for Atmospheric Research, I think. And what the scientists there were doing, looking at climate change and modeling climate change and talking about how critical this issue is likely to be for humanity's future and for every other living thing that happens to inhabit the planet with us. And that really kind of crystallized my thinking that, oh, this is something we really need to start focusing on. And I want to get ultimately more involved in this from a professional perspective. Ice time? Ice time. And you can't find it now out there in the marketplace. I mean, it's a kind of cool play on words because if you're a hockey player, ice time is how much time you get on the rink. Parents have to get ice time at three in the morning for their kids. It was was an interesting double entendre that way.
0: These days, what motivates you personally to push hard on the climate change issue?
1: Yeah, the biggest thing that motivates me is still the lack of awareness among really smart people about what's going on. So for example, this morning, I got a text at around seven o'clock this morning saying, hey, I'm reading that gas is bad, natural gas. But I also I thought that we reduced our carbon emissions significantly in the country because gas pushed coal out of the generating ecosystem. What's the deal? And this is a a friend of mine who works in talent acquisition headhunter kind of guy, smart guy, very curious. And I said, Well, yeah, it's true. Coal has twice the GHG emissions per megawatt hour that natural gas does. But gas also has some real critical issues, for example, if you leak CH4 into the atmosphere, it's 80 times more effective at trapping radiative heat than CO2 is for the first 20 years. And he goes, oh, well, I was under the impression that gas is good. I said, well, it is relative to coal, but it's kind of like a methadone clinic, right? I mean, heroin's really not good. Methadone's okay, but that's not where you want to end up. It's a transitional approach to a long-term problem we need to solve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the technologies that excites me very much is biomethane because I like the idea of taking methane that would have gone into the atmosphere and instead using it to create energy. And I'm talking about organic waste, for example. So it would have put methane into the atmosphere, which is horrible, and instead we can leverage it.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty exciting technology, both biogas, which is the precursor to renewable natural gas, because you have to clean it up, get the sulfites before you put it into the pipeline. And there's a lot of it out there, relatively speaking. California, some of their major emitters that they've identified are landfills. And then of course, there's the dairy industry and so on. I'm excited about it. I'm also concerned that like everything else, there's not a single magic bullet. There's only so much biogas that's going to be available. It would not, for example be able to supplant more than i don't know 20% 25% of gas emissions in the future and the number might even be smaller there are different studies showing different amounts but nonetheless it's a critical first step and it's like, it's kind of like me. the way i think about this and try and educate people is there are lots of different challenges and there's a massive toolbox with a lot of different tools in it each one of which can be applied to different parts of that thing we're trying to solve at different costs With different levels of complexity. And that that again gets back to what motivates me, which is these are systems of systems involving various degrees of complexity, economic difficulties, or ease, et cetera. Helping people to contextualize and understand that and be more perhaps aware in the trade-offs that they're making when they make these choices. That's what gets me up in the morning. And that corpus of knowledge changes every single day. So I actually read 32 newsletters and scan about 140 articles each day just to stay on top of what the heck is happening in the space. It takes me, you know, I I usually start at six or 630 and I can't get to my real work until nine o'clock in the morning because there's so much new stuff that came over the transom from the night before, starting with. There's a newsletter called Electrive, which is all things battery and electric vehicles that comes out of Europe. And on those nights when I'm an insomniac, I can start reading this stuff at 2.30 or 3 in the morning.
0: (laughs) Well, you mentioned that we have to open our arms to all these different technologies. I am an all arrows in the quiver kind of guy. I do believe that all of these technologies can potentially help, maybe even will help And we don't know which ones are going to be the ones that ends up being more silver bullet-ish, silver bullet-ish. So (laughs) I want to give it all a chance and see what sticks, right, over the long term.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the right approach. And I think one can't be ideological about that. The thing that's most intriguing and interesting to me is if you look at the evolution of how technologies evolve and become cost competitive, what are the various things that need to happen. So for example, you go back to the early 1900s, Theodore Wright was an economist looking at airplane manufacturing, Wright's Law, which you and I talked about in a previous call because you had actually interjected that in a previous podcast. And I was delighted to hear somebody talk in a geeky way about Wright's Law. But this whole notion, in that case, it was you double the number of airframes in the world and you reduce the cost of labor by 10 or 15%. And so we also call that the knowledge curve or the experience curve or the learning curve. Now you look at that in battery manufacturing, in solar, et cetera. But what's interesting is it's not just the ruthless efficiency of supply chain that's taking place here. What's also taking place at the same time are advances in material science, making the basic stuff better so that the solar panels get more efficient because you might be adding heterojunction, layers on layers, or... You take a, a regular panel and make it bifacial. So on a perfectly sunny day with snow on the ground, you'd harvest another 50% off the back side of that panel. Or you make half-cut cells, so the bus bars are shorter, or you shingle them and overlap. So there's all these things that humans are innovating at the same time. Bigger wind turbines, lighter blades, taller towers, tallers built on site, and new battery chemistries. You're reading about silicon anodes and a company like Amprius that now says. You know They've increased the density of the battery so you can get more range for the same weight or volume. So it's not just the efficiencies in manufacturing. It's also that people are yoking human minds to computers to make better stuff every day, which means foreordaining who the winners and losers are going to be is damn near impossible because it's not like a horse race. It's like there's a race with a bunch of chickens, goats, mules, geese, rats, monkeys, and, and, and horses all racing down the same track. The heterogeneity of what we're looking at is just astonishing right now. And some of them need to be complementary to one another as well.
0: Since you mentioned all the different ways people are innovating about solar energy, I have to say that I am on the board of a company called Pi Energy. You did not include what they're trying to do, and that is they're trying to make it thinner. They're going to sub-micron level of the silicon So that it would be lighter and cheaper, less rare earth elements, much Mm -hmm. easier to install a whole gambit. And hopefully they'll make it too. But in my opinion, all of it is important to pursue and we'll see what ends up making it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if someone had said in 2009, when we had our first thousand megawatts of solar installed in the US, that by now we'd have over 100,000 megawatts, most people would have laughed and and said, no, that's just not going to happen. And then you see, all these unexpected developments taking place. And then that opens up this new market for storage. So each thing that happens then creates either the need for or forestalls the opportunity for other things that are happening in the space. And that's what's so fascinating about this.
0: Yeah, when I was at Diego Gas and Electric, it's funny that you said, you know, laughed at you because I was laughed out of the room (laughs) by many of the leadership of Diego Gas and Electric when I put up my solar projections that basically said this stuff's gonna grow at 20, 30% compounded for another five or 10 years. And many of the people said there's no chance it's going to do that, but it it exceeded that actually in San Diego.
1: Where many humans are bound by our past experiences and we tend to think in a linear fashion. But the truth is most technology adoption curves are sort of these S curves that tend to, you know, at a certain point, they hit this acceleration point and they take off, whether it's a clothes iron or an iPhone. And spreadsheets, I think the technical word is they suck at figuring that stuff out.
0: <laughs> yes. I also took a lot of heat over my forecast on electric vehicles saying that they would eventually succeed and batteries would be bigger and they, the price would come down. And so that also has now started to happen. I was told it was also impossible by a number of the engineers, impossible to have electric cars. So
1: Yeah. So one hopes in the same way that It will be possible to have modular nuclear reactors at a decent cost within 10 or 15 years. And maybe 20 years from now, fusion becomes viable and so on. Or on the other side, carbon capture and storage and other technologies. So, my hope is that the things that we have seen transpire with batteries and wind and solar, we will also see take place in other industries as well. But getting to scale and that modularity is a critical piece of that rights law dynamic. And I worry a little bit more for, say, modular nukes, because getting to thousands of them still doesn't get you to the billions of panel scale or batteries that you see, you know, with these gigafactories that have helped so much, or with wind, you know, it's just the size, the sheer size that makes them efficient. And so that's where you might see a different economy of scale that doesn't work in the favor of some of these other technologies in the same way. Yeah.
0: But still, all hours in the quiver, got to pursue them all. Have to be,
1: have to be. Yeah. And the first thing we have to do as a society, and I, I'm disappointed in this, is we have to have a non-ideological conversation about what's happening out there. And even if someone says, I don't think climate change is real. Well, I also don't think there's a really good chance my house is going to catch on fire and I know that statistically is the case but I still get insurance for my house. And I think we if we could reframe this thing and say look, yeah there's some doubts about the models but so far what we've seen on the ground has pretty much validated a lot of what we modeled beforehand and therefore it seems like what we thought was going to happen yeah looks like it's going to get worse. But let's say I'm an extreme skeptic. Still if we could just have an honest conversation say yeah I'm skeptical but if there was a 5% chance that I was going to heat the world up two degrees centigrade or three degrees centigrade. I would do everything in my power to buy an insurance policy to keep that from happening. At least could we have that level of non-ideological conversation with some respect?
0: I had this gentleman named Neil Belfay on my podcast a few years ago, and he said, if a hand grenade landed in the middle of the room, you don't know if it's live or not, But you're still going to throw it back out the window or jump on or something. You're not going to just let it blow saying it's probably not live. You're still going to take action. Sometimes I don't like to use that analogy because it makes it seem like I have doubt that we have to do. Yeah, and I don't. But I do think the hand grenade is very live. I think we absolutely must do something. So So do I. But you
1: know the metaphor I like is if someone's blindfolded you and said you're driving towards a cliff at 60 miles an hour. You're going to keep going at that speed. You're going to accelerate or might you take your foot off the accelerator a little bit?
0: Or even better, take the blindfold off and look yeah, at my well, situation that, for real and honestly, right?
1: Well, yeah, there we go. Let's shift the entire metaphor to some kind <laughs> of intelligence, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah.
0: So when you meet people that do have those doubts, maybe their blindfolds are on, how do you convince them that this is something that's so urgent?
1: I would have to tell you that now I don't try anymore. And because I actually think this is more about a religious view or a worldview that you can throw. And we know this from basic psychology, the more facts you burden somebody with, if they don't want to accept them, the harder they dig in their heels. And what I recognized a while ago, for me personally, is it's much better to expend the next hour of time or my limited modicum of of intelligence on someone that's already trying to solve the problem and give them more tools or knowledge or awareness on how to solve the problem than trying to convince somebody who doesn't want to change their framework. And so I'm getting to be, you know, Kurt Vonnegut or that crotchety old Muppet guy up in the, uh, you know, in the balcony in the Muppets where I kind of, uh, if someone doesn't want to learn it, I'm not going to spend my time trying to change their point of view. But if someone has some doubts and they're open to a different way of thinking about this and are willing to look at the empirical evidence, I'll give them all they want that I can find out there.
0: And it's not clear that at this point it makes a lot of sense to have the argument it's so difficult and with the weather events we're seeing more and more people, even if they sometimes doubt the cause or think that humans are involved or not, they are now coming on board to the idea that Things are bad and we have to do something. So the argument is kind of being won, unfortunately, by the fact that it couldn't be won 20 years ago when it needed to be.
1: That's the sadness of it. And then there are people that I talk to who say, well, it's too late and we can't do that much about it already. And I'm like, are you serious? There's still a difference between a fever of 104 and 107. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, that's really going to be, to me, the critical factor. How soon do we get on top of this and start acting like it's life or death? Because the longer we take, the worse it's going to get.
1: Yeah, that's the unfortunate challenge. And, you know, I do a fair amount of speaking. And a lot of times now when I'm in a room, the first slide I'll put up there is, you know, the 1957 geophysical year is when it all started, when we put the Scripps Observatory up on Mauna Loa. And Back then, the Soviet Union and the Europeans and Americans were all saying, oh, we're living on this little blue marble. Let's figure out what we're doing. And now we get to this point where people say, oh, it's 1.5 degrees centigrade or two degrees centigrade. The first thing I think we need to do is start translating that into Fahrenheit more often so people know what that means. But I was at a conference about five or six years ago where Dr. Don Wubble, who was the chief scientist for the National Climate Assessment that was being delivered to the Trump administration was speaking um, ahead of a panel I was moderating. And he said, okay, so we're in Chicago. And imagine if we were to cool the temperature here, six degrees centigrade, instead of warm, it, just to give you a sense of you know, the magnitude here, where would we be sitting here in Chicago if the temperature were six degrees centigrade cooler than it is today? And everyone in the room looked at each other kind of like the dummies we were. And he said, we would be sitting in the middle of the equivalent of the Laurentian ice age under a mile of ice. And the light bulbs went on like, oh, you know, one or two or three or four or five or six degrees matters in either direction. That kind of magnitude is actually quite considerable and has enormous implications for humanity and for the rest of the biosphere we live in.
0: Also, steady state is a big thing. In other words, people learn to farm and learn to live in a certain climate. And if it's constantly changing and you're having extreme events, it's very difficult to plan for that and learn to live well in a constantly changing environment.
1: Yeah, we've inherited a Goldilocks environment that was neither too hot nor cold and fairly stable, except for like the Little Ice ages, and, and we already saw how damaging that was. So yeah, I think we've, we've taken that for granted. And now we've created this huge science experiment that we live in.
0: So you talked about how each morning you read around three hours of material On energy and climate each day. Wow, that's amazing. I am not even close. What else do you do to help mitigate climate change?
1: Well, you know, in my own life, like I got my electric vehicle and I have a pretty well insulated house with triple pane windows. And it was actually a modular home. So it was built with six inch studs to start with. And then I had additional rigid foam cladding on the outside. And I do have a wood stove that's actually integrated into the home, which I never cut down a live tree, but I sure was heck will scavenge the dead ones. So yes, I'm advancing the carbon emissions there a little bit and some particulates, but most of them blow over the ocean and the fish haven't thus yet complained to me. Um, and I'm thoughtful about the trips that I take. And I do offset my flights, at least sometimes with carbon offsets, not a perfect solution. But right now, I haven't figured out a way to fly from point A to point B on hydrogen or sustainable fuels. So... It's admittedly not a perfect toolkit that I'm using, but I'm working on making it better. And I also have community solar. I have 25 panels that are located. Five of them are about 35 miles in one direction and 20 are located in 20 miles in another direction. Plus I have on the rooftop, I've got my solar hot water evacuated tubes. And then I also have a super insulated basement. So I've done some of the basic things, but not all of them.
0: What about in your work life, though? I think you do a lot to help there.
1: Oh, I mean, the main thing I do is the consulting work that I do. I put out a weekly video, for example. It's on YouTube and it's on my LinkedIn and you can get it on my website. And it's that I take all the reading I do each weekly and I distill it down. First, I tweet out the stories I think move the needle each day. And then at the end of the week, I take the eight to 10 stories that I think really matter, hydrogen, battery chem, some regulatory issue, whatever it is. And I put it in a five minute video that some people that I've talked to, I ran into someone at a conference a few weeks ago. He says, Pete, I don't have to do the work anymore because you do it for me. Now he's relying on me for the curatorial work, like my point of view, how I curate is slanted my own way. That's the bias and the risk he undergoes. But my general... Job is quite simple. It is to cross pollinate information as quickly and effectively for other people so that they don't have to do that much work. So, yesterday, for example, I put party A in touch with party B just as a favor, where someone's working on a universal registry for distributed energy resources, which is going to be critically important for DERs. Because if you think about it, every DER has a location. Or if it's a car, it can be anywhere, but you need to know that. And it has other attributes. And so we want to build and scale massive ecosystem of DERs. You've got to figure out some way to do that efficiently. If every single vendor has to deal with each utility, which has their own nomenclature, it'll be a mess. And so I just wanted to put these two parties together, one vendor and then this nonprofit group. So they could help each other out and understand what they were trying to do and give each other different advice. And I love doing that, especially when I can step back and watch someone else's light bulbs go off and then I can move to the next thing. My job, as I see it, is never to get way down in the weeds because my job is to just dig through tons of information, just tear through it, figure out what makes sense, who it matters to. And then contextualize that information and impart it to them so they can take action. And then I'm off to the next guy. So I'm just this kind of drone bee that flies around all over the place, trying to cross pollinate as fast as I can. And a while ago, you know, I used to head up Constellation's DR group, and we had 1,700 megs of dispatchable load. We were the second largest in the world. And I was arguably an expert in demand response. But I wanted to know, when I left Constellation, how it all fit together. And if you pulled on this yarn on the loom, what was going to happen over here and why? And I began to realize over time that I'm probably more effective not as a doer, but as a storyteller, a communicator, and somebody who links other doers together to leverage and help manifest what they do in ways that might not have existed if I hadn't just helped facilitate that conversation.
0: I think the entire industry owes you thank you because you do educate all of us. I know that it's very important to me and a lot of the people that I talk to. So thank you. You're
1: welcome. Sincerely, you're welcome. I will also admit from an egotistical perspective, it's nice to be the know-it-all, you know? Except except when people want to play stump the chump and they just (laughs) nail me to the wall with something that I should know. And I remember one time I had a slide up leap at a training at American Public Power Association, someone said, "That's not capacity, that's energy." I'm like, "No, I think it's capacity." He goes, "No, it can't be because." And I was like, "Uh oh!" And I just, I just, I had a laugh and look at him and say, "You just reduced me to a quivering mass of intellectual jelly." You're absolutely right. I apologize. I won't make that mistake again. Yeah. You know? And so, when you when you say, "Oh yeah, I read every day," you set yourself up for people going, "Okay, you better be right about that."
0: <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but I had the pleasure at an ESNA, Energy Storage North America conference, where I was on, I was facilitating a panel that you were the host of. And you had a very thorough process to make sure that everything was written down beforehand and all the people knew what they were going to do. Do you remember that?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, I do remember. Moderating panels is for me the hardest. Like if I'm doing a presentation, I know where it's going to go. But with panels, you have a couple of things that are really important. One is everybody's come there from someplace and there's an opportunity cost. And you have to honor the fact that they've made that commitment to be there and let them tell their story. And so my job is, you know, that word educate, educare, to draw out. A panel moderator's responsibility, as I see it, is to be really well prepared, contextually understand what's going on in the conversation, have it when they need to, figure out when to cut people off if they have to, But really enable an organic dialogue to take place that's interesting, that the audience is going to be fascinated by, and they don't quite know what the next thing is that's going to happen so that they're not checking their boss's email or the last cat video on an iPhone. Like that's the job of a moderator as I see it. And so I like to have a cheat sheet ahead of time with the names and everything. And I can tell you one time, I was at a conference where I was moderating a session among utility execs for three hours, and then I had to go right into a panel and leave. I forgot what the subject was, but luckily I had the cheat sheet, so I was able to pop open my laptop and look at it and go, oh yeah, we're talking about this. And if I hadn't had that preparation, I would have been like a worm squirming on a hot <laughs> pavement after the rain. You know, It would have just been ugly.
0: I think you would have been fine. I've seen you speak and you're awesome, but I have leveraged your process. So when I moderate now, I always insist on people filling out that form and I leverage it, not because I think I'm going to forget because (laughs) I think it focuses me on what the important points of the panel are and making sure I make everybody look their best, right? Which is your job as a moderator.
1: Yep, and it focuses the speakers too because they have to boil down what they're saying into those thesis statements. Oh, the other thing I learned to do is get the panelists to introduce themselves because that way I don't butcher names anymore (laughs) because the rest of it, I know more or less. The one thing that is decontextualizes somebody's name and how to pronounce it and their title that I'm perfectly capable of forgetting right up until the last moment. So if I, if I outsource that to somebody else, it does two things. One, it removes all that agita for me and if they do it right, they create the on-ramp for the conversation. The introduction actually provides the thesis statement for where we're going to go. And so I've learned over time where I've made mistakes and where I think things work better. And again, so much of what we do as humans in the political arena, in our own lives, etc., is framing the issues and setting the narrative. And whoever can best frame the narrative and own that story has a tremendous amount of power. Always did, whether they were sitting around a cave flickering at the fire, you know, talking with the other people or today in the broader framework of what we do. And so whether it's moderating panels or keynotes or one-on-one conversations or whatever, thinking about it in terms of the narrative with that storyteller in mind, I've come to realize how critically important that is and how valuable and freighted with import each word can
0: be. Can you talk about your prior backgrounds? How did you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, that's not the recipe that I would suggest other people take, but I would say (laughs) so. (laughs) So graduated from college with a German major because i lived for a year in Germany as an exchange student and a semester in Freiburg and then hitchhiked through Africa, you know, painted houses for a summer, got $4,000 in cash and money built, and then went through from Cairo up the Nile, tied myself on the roof of a train, down through the Nubian desert, down to Khartoum. The week I got there, a war broke out. So then I ended up flying to Addis Ababa and down to Uganda and then traipsed around there. And then finally got home. And I was gonna get a master's degree at the Fletcher School in European Studies. And I switched it over to development economics because I was just so entranced by the challenges of technological adoption and economic development and so on. So then I spent six months in Somalia as an internship, another year going all over Africa with Catholic Relief Services, then got married. My wife had also worked in development economics, so we were over in Africa for a while. But she said to me, you know, every time you pick up The Economist, you always go for the environmental section, every single time. When are you going to start paying attention to that inner voice? And we had some challenges with the pregnancy, she more than I, but it all worked out fine, And I had to leave Africa early. She got evacuated. And I ended up, a friend of mine was in the energy space and got me involved in energy. And once I fell into that, I just loved it. I love the fact that the electron touches us all in so many different ways all the time. I mean, right now, it's illuminating the room and facilitating our conversation. It's just this magical extension of us. And we have our own electric systems in us. As soon as they shut down, we die. and so. I love the electron because it's so bloody complex and so simple at the same time. And you can have many multiple different levels of conversation around electricity with an engineer on one level or just your average Joe. And so what I found is, you know, I'm a German major, development economics. If someone had told me, Oh, Pete, someday you're going to write a book on the evolution of the power sector, I would have said, (laughs) you're just daft. That's the stupidest idea. I've ever heard in my life. And still some days I wake up and go, huh? You know that uh, song, What Have I Done? How Did I Get Here? By the Talking Heads. That's, (laughs) I feel that way a lot of times. I'm really privileged to be in this space. And you know, because we've had this conversation, you've had so many other people on the podcast. This group of individuals in this space trying to solve these problems are some of the most passionate, intelligent, nuanced creative and generous thinkers I've ever run into. And the, the LinkedIn community, the, the sharing of information, ideas, models, I've never run into anything like that before in my whole life. And so we're in this sort of rarefied space, you and I and the others engage in the energy conversation. And I try and remember every single day how privileged I am to be here and how important it is To approach this in a spirit of generosity, the way you obviously do every time you put a podcast out into the world.
0: What setback sticks in your mind to this day?
1: Let's see, setbacks with people where my arrogance will turn somebody. I mean, so sometimes when I have a disagreement with somebody, I have this really unfortunate a habit of carpet bombing somebody with data. Like I can just, because I remember stuff and because I'm tracking stuff all the time, it's not nice what I do sometimes. Mm. And I could be more gentle in terms of helping someone along the conversation instead of showing them that I know more than you do, which is never a good trait. I try not to do it. And I always feel like a dog after I've done it. So that's something I'm still working on. Other setbacks, you know, in work, I was never really that good at managing up. (laughs) <laughs> it's one of the reasons I work for myself now. Yes. I just am not good at managing up. But real things where where I've sort of gotten knocked down, had to dust myself off and go, oof. No, I don't I don't think I've really suffered anything like that. As soon as we get off this podcast, I'll remember something. And go, oh, I'm gonna call Lee and tell him about this one. But I can't think of anything right now that's been that brutal that way.
0: Cool. That's good. That's good to hear.
1: Oh, wait, wait, wait. I do. Sorry. I got the setback.
0: Okay. Let's hear it.
1: Yep. Okay. So, when, we were, when I was heading up Constellation's demand response group, the way that ISO New England and other ISOs, it used to be they had a small number of zones. And so you had all your megawatts in a zone and it was pretty easy to deal with. Then they started to make them more granular. So, let's say I had 500 megawatts in New England. And let's just for simplicity assume they broke it into five zones and it was 100 megs in each zone in a perfect world. Uh uh-uh, uh, Not us. We had 250 in one and 30 in another. So suddenly we had these commitments and we were out of compliance. And at the same time in another market, they do the auctions every year for value of capacity and the price fell by sixfold. So the commitments I had to the corporation in terms of the, the margin I was going to deliver and also the compliance issues. Well, I went into this one meeting. And my whole world fell apart within about 15 minutes because I didn't have the data because the systems weren't good. I wasn't as well prepared as I should have been because I was focusing on some other issues. I remember walking out of that meeting and just going, This is the beginning of my end in this particular incarnation. And I need to understand that. I need to inhabit it. And I need to figure out what the next thing I'm going to do in my life is. So, yes, I do distinctly remember that. And when I walked back to my office, I had an executive admin. She looked at me. And she said, you're gray. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was was not a good day for me, but it was a great day because it pushed me out of the nest into what I'm doing now. So in that sense, everybody in that room did me a huge favor.
0: Ultimately, what was the fallout? Did you change careers because of it or did it really just go on business as usual for you?
1: Yeah, so you know, it was interesting. So I've told the story to a few people, so might as well keep going. All right this is one of the funniest things that's ever happened to me in a job. So I go in for my review, we'd done an acquisition, we brought those people in, it was really hard. And I was trying, really trying to do what was best for the company. So we have the review and my boss says, you know, you did a great job integrating this acquisition and you made everyone feel good. You didn't put your own, you know, needs ahead of everyone else's. I've not seen many people do that. Kudos to you for that. He goes, on the other hand, your commitment to the company to make X million, and you made 70% of that. So I was going to give you this rating, um, and I, the rating scale was like one to five. And I'd always gotten fours because five, you get a walk on water, which I can do in the winter if it's ice, but otherwise, no. So he goes, I was going to give you a three, but instead, because of the numbers, I'm going to give you a two. So I walked back to my office, and again, my executive, admin. <laughs> she and I were really close. And she goes, how'd the review go, boss? And I said, well, it turns out I'm a two. And she was way more upset about it than yeah. I was later. But here's the best part. So like two days later, there's a meeting. I've got a whole slew of meetings all morning stacked up until two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm starving. And I called her in. and I say, Kathy, I hate to do this to you because I never wanted her to do errands for me. I said, can you please run downstairs and grab me a sandwich at Panera because I'm starving? And she looked at me straight face and she goes, not for a 2 on I'm not. <laughs> Oh my God, I wanted to hug this woman because it broke the ice. I was laughing so hard and said so the two of us for the rest of the next few months while I was still there, every time we could weave the word two into a conversation, we would do it and then the two of us would guffaw like little children, you know? I love but that. It, yeah, that that's the funny part of that conversation. I, I really laughed as this hard being on the abusive end of a situation like I was on that one. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Tell me about the success that you're most proud of.
1: Oof. To me, yesterday I got an email from a company that I've worked with in the past. And I worked with them last year, I did a workshop. And in the workshop, I was educating about 40 people in a room for three hours on evolution of the grid, what's going on. So I have these really, I gotta get one for you. Hang on one second.
0: As long as you don't run out of time. No, 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 don't worry.
1: Here, look. I have these t-shirts made up and it says, Tummy Tuck the Duck, right? And it's got the duck curve and it's got an image of a duck with a sagging thing.
0: In case it wasn't clear what the message was on the t-shirt, it says, Tummy Tuck the Duck. If you want to see the shirt and how much fun the two of us had talking, check out the video on YouTube. Just search for the climate champions and Lee Crevat.
1: So I bring these t-shirts in and I say, whoever asks the best question wins one of these shirts. And so they started asking questions and then, then they're starting to like fight among each other. Who asked the best question? So they emailed me yesterday and said, would you come back and do another one today? The speaker who came after you last year, everyone gave him a hard time because they said PKD brought us gifts and you didn't bring us anything. <laughs> And they also just ordered another 25 books because every one of their new employees gets one of my books as an onboarding. There's now a few companies that do that. And another company that just ordered 500 and they're doing a book club. It's a company I won't mention, but it's one of the ones I most respect in the energy space. And so for me, the fact that what I, that thing of mine, that creation that I put out into the world that I had so much trepidation about, so much help from people, but the fact that people are saying, this helps us educate our employees in the energy space around what's going on. We're going to do book clubs and we're going to you know, make it part of our onboarding. I couldn't have imagined that I would have that level of satisfaction and joy two years after the publication date of, of how this thing still lives out there in the world. And, and so that for me is my absolute pinnacle of satisfaction and pleasure, I feel when someone tells me something like that.
0: That's awesome. I'm going to have to get to one of your conferences so I can ask a question and get myself a shirt. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I got a new t-shirt coming up, by the way.
0: I have a fun story quickly about the duck curve, which you just showed. Mm -hmm. I saw that curve before it was named because we at San Diego Gas Electric were experiencing it and we saw the future. So we had that curve drawn. And Rob Anderson, I just want to give a call out to him, a shout out. Rob Anderson found that curve and showed us what was going to happen and did like a multi-year look at it within San Diego Gas and Electric. And I would call it the Anderson curve. And yeah. I had a lot of people calling it the Anderson curve. And then suddenly it was named the duck curve. And so we had to kind of switch and not call it the Anderson curve anymore.
1: And he could have been famous out of office,
0: you know? <laughs> if he only yeah. he was more creative. <laughs> so when you look ahead 10, 20, 30 years... How do you see the earth progressing? Is it going to do great somehow? Is it going to do horrible? What do you think?
1: You know, I start with the premise that you can't argue with atmospheric chemistry. It's going to do what it's going to do. It doesn't care about our ideology, our egos, any of that. I also start with the premise that human beings, while not always wise in terms of knowing what to do or what not to do, we are really super intelligent in terms of adapting, developing new tools and that sort of thing. So I still, there are days I look at this and I feel frustrated, sad, etc. But I also have this abiding faith that people will somehow figure it out. What I hope is they don't just think about us as a single species, but really bring more spirituality to the game and a recognition that life itself is sacred, not just our lives, but all lives on the planet. And then we start to think about this gift we've been given and we act in ways that are more broad spiritually about how we think of things and so i think there is some chance that we'll either founder on the rock you know of climate change and limits of of everything else we're running into or maybe we finally reach this awakening that we've never had to have before and that's for me The ultimate question is someone who some days feels like I'm a Martian looking at the world from outside going, is humanity going to figure this out or not? I think we're at this inflection point, which is really fascinating. It's the first time a generation of humans has ever encountered the concept of finitude, that we can't keep doing things the way we're doing. And we're going to know a lot more in the next 20 or 30 years as to how that grand experiment plays
0: out. How do you think the pandemic affected the future of climate change?
1: You know, in the beginning... It was interesting because it was another unintended experiment and we saw our our emissions drop off and that sort of thing. And yet, so many people already seem to have forgotten the lessons of the pandemic. It's almost like a a nightmare from which we woke up. There were fewer of us, for sure, because unfortunately, millions of people died and other people living with long COVID. So there are some people who were really impacted, others not. But in terms of the lessons we've learned and What it's really done for us from a perspective of climate change. I don't see that much myself personally.
0: Can you share advice with our listeners about how they can help mitigate climate change?
1: I think my advice would be to learn as much as you can about it. Doesn't mean you have to read three hours a day. No. The advice I would give to people is even more broadly try and walk through life with as much consciousness as you can bring to the game and goodwill and generosity because. Those same skills and attributes that we need to bring to the climate thing, we also need to bring to just living as intentional human beings.
0: Yeah, take the blindfold off.
1: Uh huh. Be aware and conscious spiritual individuals. Yeah. And bring love to the game. I mean, love is a four-letter word we should be using a lot more.
0: Wow. Do you have any questions for me?
1: Yeah. Of all the people you haven't had a chance yet to have on your podcast, Who would be the one you would most want to talk to and why?
0: There are three people that I'd like to have on my podcast. I actually wrote a rap to Elon Musk. That was before he went a little crazy. So he was at the top of my list. And I think he still would be crazy and all, because I think he has done a lot with electric vehicles. Second, I would say Al Gore, because many people say that he was their inspiration for why they became climate champions And I would love to talk to him about his beginnings and ask him similar questions as I just asked you. And then third, I'd like to talk to Greta. I think she'd be awesome to talk to and understand where she's at, how she gets motivated, what was her aha moment. That'd be super fun. So I guess those would be my top three, but I don't think I'll ever have any of them on my show. I've
1: tried. Well, if I ever run into any one of them, I'll put in a good word, Lee.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Is there anything else that you want to say?
1: You know, I think the one last thing is we've been trained in modern educational frameworks to break everything apart, right? Sort of that Descartes way of disassembling everything. But we live in a connected world. And one of the real challenges, I think, for all of us is to reintegrate the things that we've been taught. You know, one of these things is not like the other. Sesame Street, We're, we've we <laughs> always been taught to this taught to discern and pull apart. And what we really need to do is to start to reintegrate and think about things as systems of systems. And Texas right now is driving me nuts because the failure in February of 2021 was gas froze at the wellhead, then gauges froze, then some wind turbines froze. And now we're, we're focusing on symptoms. Oh, we're going to add another 10 gigawatts of gas jam. Well, that doesn't help you at all if you don't solve the gas problem at the wellhead. And so if we don't start to re-engage as integrated human beings in an integrated society with a clear, foreordained, or I should say premeditated thinking about these as systems of systems, we hamstring ourselves tremendously, in fact, risk failure. And so that's the thing I think we really have to bear in mind. In terms, yes, the spiritual intentionality, all the other things, but understand this is a complex world. And if I pull on lever A, things happen over in B, C, and D that I didn't even think about, even though they should have probably been obvious.
0: And with that word of warning, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to do it with a wrap. You thought that the dying of striped bass, that it was a crime. And then you got inspired by the book, Ice Time. You think energy equity is important for fairness, but people need to all have more general awareness. You do videos, you do tweets, you communicate in every single way, and you read articles about energy and climate change three hours every day. But when you have a bad experience, sometimes you'll look A little gray. It's really good that your wife told you to listen to your environmental inner voice and you love electrons and what they do. So that was a great choice. When you had a bad experience, somehow you still grew, although your admin always knows that you are a two. If we want (laughs) all of us to be able to rise, we have to take the blindfold off our eyes. You're an industry thought leader in energy. Thank you so much for talking to me on the future of power. I think we basically agree. You see yourself as a pollinating drone bee. You understand the validity of atmospheric (laughs) chemistry. You want people to awake and think spiritually. Such an enlightening conversation. Thank you, P. K-D.
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> Thank
1: you, Lee. <laughs> OMG.
0: <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to Peter about all things smart grid, but even more fun were the discussions about learning, generosity, awareness consciousness, spiritualness, and love—a four-letter word we should be using a lot more—taking the blinders off not only for mitigating climate change, but to live as intentional human beings. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rated five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And check out my new YouTube channel. Just search for The Climate Champions and Lee Krivat. Peter recommends that we all learn more and increase our awareness. But nobody else I know can match the three hours each morning he spends reading, understanding, and boiling content down so the rest of us can get the gist with a lot less effort. So go out, read his book, The Energy Switch, and or watch his YouTube videos, get educated, and join us in the fight to help mitigate climate change.